when a when an author dies, if the character they've created is any good, the character lives on. People are still wanting to read Miss Marple novels, Poirot novels, James Bond novels, Sherlock Holmes novels. Um, any great character will last longer than their creator. I'm Michael Tamlin, CEO of Rakuten Kobo. This is Kobo in Conversation. My guest today is Ian Rankin. He is one of the great practitioners of Scottish crime fiction and the creator of Inspector Rebus, one of the most compelling characters in crime fiction, period, as well as the more recent accompaniment, Malcolm Fox. He also manages to pack in TV appearances, graphic novels, and short stories, but his most recent book isn't about Rebus or Fox or any of the other characters of Rankin's creation. It is the completion of a book that was started by fellow Scottish crime writer, the dearly departed William McIlvaney, The Dark Remains. Ian Rankin, welcome to Kobo. Thank you very much. The Dark Remains centers on the character of Jack Laidlaw. And the first time that we meet him is in the novel Laidlaw in 1977, uh, written by William McIlvaney. What was unique about that character when he first appeared? in the mid-1970s? Uh, I guess we think of there being no tradition of the crime novel in Scotland, which is ironic because one of the greatest crime fiction characters, Sherlock Holmes, was created by a Scot, um, Arthur Conan Doyle. But there was no Scottish Miss Marple or Hercule Poirot or anything like that. And the Scottish crime novel really gets going in the 70s with McIlvaney. Now, importantly, he was not really a crime writer, never thought of himself as a mystery novelist. He was a literary novelist. Early on in his career, he had a lot of success with literary fiction, winning prizes and so forth. Then he turns to the detective novel just for three books with this character, Jack Laidlaw, um, who's a philosopher detective. He reads Camus in his spare time, as indeed did William McIlvaney. Uh, but he stalks the mean streets of 1970s and 80s Glasgow. So lots of things were important about him. Number one, he, he was writing urban crime fiction. And many of us who were attracted to the genre were not at all attracted to the world of, of Miss Marple or Poirot. But we did like the idea of gritty urban novels about contemporary Scotland. And that was what Marco Vanni gave us. And he also gave us the patina that the books would not just be crime novels or whodunits, but could actually strive towards literature. And he was a working class guy. He was a self-made man, similar kind of background to me. And that was important as well. Here was a guy who had scaled the heights of literary fiction as a working class man in Scotland, but saw, no, um, saw nothing wrong with then penning a few crime novels. And what was his effect on you, both McIlvaney and Laidlaw, as a, as someone who was just getting started as a writer? Oh, man, huge, huge. Uh, I mean, I was a big fan of, of William McIlvaney, and I heard or read it was going to be at the Edinburgh Book Festival in 1985, August 1985. I was still a student at that time. I was doing a postgraduate thesis in the novels of Muriel Spark, fantastic Edinburgh novelist who wrote The Prime of Miss Jean Brodie. I was planning to be a literary novelist and a professor of literature. Um, and I ran along to the Edinburgh Book Festival with a copy of one of McIlvaney's books in my hand. 
and said, oh, Mr. McIlvaney, um, I'm writing a book that's a bit like Laidlaw, but set in Edinburgh. Um, will you sign my book for me? And he duly signed the book, Good Luck with the Edinburgh Laidlaw. <laughs> now, little did he know, you know, I mean, he, this was just a young guy running up to him, like any fanboy moment. Little did he know that that book would eventually be published um, and would lead to me uh, still over 30 years on writing about the same character. You were first approached by McElvaney's, uh widow, Siobhan, to, uh, to see if a manuscript could be finished. And, and so when she approached you, what did you, what did you have to work with? Oh, geez. Well, it, she, she had given to Willie's publisher, Canongate Books, who are based here in Edinburgh. She'd given them a hundred handwritten pages, um, which they had then had typed up. And bless whoever typed it up, because the typing would say things like, I think this is what his handwriting says, but I'm not 100% sure. <laughs> so it was a bit of a guddle, as we say in Scotland, a bit of a mess. Um, it was a patchwork. And they handed it over to me and said, Ian, is there anything you think could be done with this? Could it become a novel? And I looked at it, and, and it was fascinating to me. I was suddenly inside a writer's head. Um, and I was getting to a sense of his thought processes as he began to wrestle with the idea for a book. And I started to see, I started to tease out that there were actually two stories in here. One was going to be a prequel, an early novel featuring the character, and one was going to be the final book uh, in the weeks leading up to his retirement. Now, Willie didn't leave nearly enough for that second book, but he did leave, leave quite a lot of scenes and characters and moments and beats that allowed me to think that you could construct a novel from this. And I said that to Canongate. I said, you could construct a short novel from this. They then went back to the, the widow, Siobhan Lynch, and she came back to me and said, Ian, I want you to do it. Willie would want you to do it. Um, and the challenge was huge. I mean, it was a huge honour, obviously, because he was like a, a, a father figure to me and a mentor to me. But his style is very different from my style. His detective is actually quite different from my detective. His city is different from my city. And the book was set in 1972. In 1972, I was 12 years old and just about old enough to start reading The Godfather. I don't think I'd ever been to Glasgow at that time. So could I get inside his head? Could I mimic his style? Because it was important to me this be his book, not mine. So could I become a ventriloquist? And, and, and you know, would the reader be getting an authentic William McIlvaney experience? So that was the, that was the pressure. Uh, but, you know, it was lockdown, um, Michael. What else was I going to do? Uh, I had nothing else to do to keep me busy. Was there a, a f pieces of a plot? Was there a kind of a villain? Was there a conclusion? Or were you really pulling together a set of impressions and trying to stretch it across the framework of the book? There were a couple of fairly complete opening chapters. Um and a cast of characters, and they were characters who appear in the other three Laidlaw books. So of course, I went back and read and reread and reread those to try and get to the heart of those characters and their speech patterns and everything else. There was, there was an epilogue, but not really a climactic scene. So part of the process of being an archaeologist and going through the notes was to try and work out what Willie was leading towards, who was the killer, and why had they committed the crime. And I could see tantalizing glimpses of where I thought the book should go. But it is my approximation because he didn't, he left a route map without actually leaving the destination. Um, but 
a lot of critics who've reviewed the book so far have said, oh, this is a point perhaps where McIlvany stopped and rank and begins. No, it wasn't like that. It wasn't as though he'd written the first 10 chapters, then dropped dead. Mm-hmm. It was more that there were little beats and moments and scenes and characters threaded throughout. Uh, and then also on almost every page of this book, you've got a bit of Willie McIlvany and a bit of Ian Rankin. And, and the trick was to make it feel as though you were only getting William McIlvany. You've talked in interviews about your own writing process, which could be described as first draft first, research later. And, <laughs> yeah. as, and as a writer who's been working with your own characters in series for a long time, what happens when you have to set all of that aside and pick up another author's voice? Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's brutally difficult. And all the way through, I wasn't... I mean, I said to Canongate, look, you have got to allow me to walk away if at any stage I feel this is not working. Um, I'm not going to do it just to do it. I won't do it unless I feel it is actually the way that Willie would want it. Um, I was fortunate in a sense. I mean, he had, there were the three books that exist that I could go back and look at to get a sense of the character and the various gangsters. Gangsters who pop up in all three books popped up in this, this prequel. So fine, I had them to work with. Um, the main character, of course, Willie had mapped out fairly well in the three books that exist. His home life, his family life was mapped out. Um, the support characters in the police force were mapped out. I then got fortunate because lockdown eased enough that the National Library of Scotland near where I live reopened and I booked a, a time slot and went in there and pulled out the Glasgow Herald newspaper for 1972 and went through an entire year's worth of newspapers to find out what was happening in the world, what was happening in Glasgow at that time um, that would have impacted on the city and the people who lived there. And it was an interesting period. Glasgow was beginning to become post-industrial um, and large swathes that were being knocked down, the, the tenements, the, the ghettos, as it were, were being knocked down and replaced by shiny, ugly high-rise apartment blocks on the outskirts of the city, which eventually disenfranchised the whole swathe of the city. So all of that was ongoing. So it was an interesting time in the life of the city, and I want to get that across. And the newspapers helped with that, but also helped with incidental details. So what was in the pop charts? What was on TV? How were the soccer teams doing? What kind of cars were people driving? Where did people buy their clothes? These little in- incremental details um, meant that I could sort of put together a, a picture of the city uh, in, in, in that time period. Uh, because as I say, I was 12 years old in 1972 and not really aware of the world at all. So that was fortunate. And I got street maps. I got lots of plans of Glasgow, again, from the time. And so I was able to plot the progress of the characters through the streets um, and make sure there were the real streets at that time. So all of that was good. But you know the main thing? It was an escape from Camp COVID because 1972 (laughs) was a much simpler world. It was like an escape tunnel. Every day I was digging my way out of COVID, not to think about it, not to look at the news every five minutes. I could retreat to 1972, a much simpler criminal world and a world where I didn't have to worry as an author about things like cell phones, CCTV, computers, DNA analysis of a crime scene, all the the things that now happen with forensics, none of that pertained in 1972. Um, so it was a it was a world of of kind of goodies and baddies, um, and a and a very and a nice straightforward world to write about. Because now you know whenever you start to write a mystery novel or a whodunit, you've got to factor in the cell phone, 
Um, you've got to factor in the, is there any CCTV of the, 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 the victim prior to their death? Um, their, you know, what is their internet history? What is their browsing history, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And with all the progress that's been made in crime scene analysis and DNA analysis of a crime scene and of a murder victim, the audience knows about that. So you've got to bring that into your book as well. Um, and in some ways that just gets in the way of really wanting to get down to the nitty gritty of the plot and, and it can slow down the plot and everything else. So, and also I'm not an expert in these things. I've got to pretend to be an expert while not being an expert. So it was nice to escape all of that. In your own books, Inspector Rebus has aged more or less from you know the late eighties until today. And you've been able to kind of walk the evolution of police procedure through that time, sometimes in his case, unwillingly, but um <laughs> But diving back into 1970s police procedure, did you? How did you dust off the you know, the sense of what a what would a detective be using and doing then in order to kind of go on with that with that kind of investigation at that time? Well, luckily, you know, I mean, the Ma Willie Macovani's books exist, and lots of other books from the period exist. And there were TV shows around at the time as well, things like The Sweeney on TV, which was a fantastic cop show that I used to watch when I was a kid. Um, so I had all of that uh, at my disposal. And of course, the imagination is a wonderful thing. You just make stuff up and hope you get it right. And, um, you know, usually I'm not a planner, I'm a pantser. I fly by the seat of my pants. And as you've suggested, I do the research after the first draft. The first draft is kind of freewheeling, as it were. Um, with this, I had a template. I had quite a lot of it mapped out as to the, the, the way this book would, would progress. Uh, and I was what I was doing was sort of filling in the pattern or filling in the pieces of the jigsaw that had been left blank. So there was only so much I could do in terms of pantsing uh, but the planning had already been done. So that actually made it fairly straightforward. And, you know, it was just, it was, it was lovely to, once I found the rhythm of Vanni's voice, the rhythm, because he's a bit, he's quite a Rococo writer. He's much more poetical in his descriptions and his sentence structure than I am. My books are staccato and more, more, con, excuse me, more concise sentence wise. Um, once I figured out how to do that, once I'd got Laidlaw's inner self in my head, everything else kind of fell into place. I also had to be careful that it was Laidlaw and not Rebus. And the one thing that I started to realise, especially rereading the Laidlaw novels, was how much of Laidlaw I had lifted for the earliest incarnations of Rebus. Um, up to the point, and someone pointed this out to me last night, I did an event last night in St Andrews, um, a town not too far from Edinburgh, and a member of the audience asked a question. He said, Ian, I've just reread your first Rebus novel, Knots and Crosses. Are you aware that one of John Rebus's neighbours is called Jock Laidlaw? Uh, in the tenement where Rebus lives, he has a neighbour called Jay Laidlaw. That obviously is, is an immediate homage, but I just completely forgotten I'd done it in the book. But even the figure of Cafferty, who's the villain in my books, who runs Edinburgh and is Rebus's nemesis in many ways, um, owes quite a debt to one of the gangsters who I think Marco Vanni was very attracted to as a character, um, John Rhodes. John Rhodes uh, is in this book and he's in several of the other Laidlaw novels. And he's a, I guess he's a, he's a gangster with a conscience in a way. Um, and he's attractive and charismatic as well as being dangerous. And I think I stole quite a lot of him for my guy Cafferty. 
And did you have to give the whole thing a read at some point to see if any of your own, you know, little ticks or habits had, had worked their way in? Yeah, I did. And I didn't find too many, but then Willie's agent looked at it and his publisher looked at it. And then the real, the real um, judge and jury is when it was sent to Siobhan, his widow. Mm -hmm. And she sent me, we hadn't spoken since the memorial service for Willie uh, six years ago. She sent me a lovely handwritten letter. How many times do you get a handwritten letter? I very seldom get them these days. And she said, Ian, I cannot see the join. I cannot see where it stops being Willie and starts being you. I thought, great job done. But then she went on to say, you did something very special here. You gave me Willie back. You brought him back into my life for the weekend that I read this book. It was as though he was sitting in the room with me. I could hear him. And I just, my heart split in two um, when she told me that. And it was just the nicest thing she could have said. And I thought, well, okay, Ian, job done. There are some writers who find the act of writing to be a struggle. You know, it's full of torment and grinding effort. And my understanding is that you are not one of those. You've always talked about writing being a lot of fun for you. Uh, but one of the reasons uh, that it's fun is that you're spending time with your characters, you know, with your with your friends, with people that you've that you've kind of come to know over the years. This was something very different. So was it still fun? Um, it was fun in that a challenge is fun. If you pick up a challenge, I mean, the, the worst thing a writer can do is become lazy. And if you are writing about a series character, you can become lazy very quickly. Your audience and your publisher want a book that's just slightly different from the book before, thank you very much, but not too dissimilar. And, um, and, and that means you can get a little bit blasé, and that is the enemy of good writing. And the nice thing about Rebus as a character is he ages in real time. So when I start to write a new Rebus novel, he has changed from the previous book, and that keeps me on my toes, and that keeps him fresh as a character and keeps me interested in him as a character. This was a, a different kind of challenge, but it was it was um, it was fun. I think it was fun. Uh, you know, stepping away from the world of COVID was fun. Being set back in the past and and trying to remember back to the seventies and the good things and the bad things about the seventies. Um, you know, people smoking in bars and buses and uh, airplanes. And, everywhere, uh, really. Everywhere. Uh, Hospital operating and, you know, rooms. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I remember I, I was almost too true to, 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 to William McIlvany's uh, legacy because when I gave the first draft to the publisher, they said, uh, Ian, it's mostly just a lot of hard men sitting in bars playing mind games with each other and smoking furiously. And I said, yeah, that's the three Laidlaw novels. If you go back and look at the source material, that's kind of what happens. There's not a lot of kinetic action. They said, well, can we please try and get them out of the bars a little bit and maybe get them onto the streets or have things happen outside? Let's get some fresh air. And they also said, the publisher also said, not many women. And I said, well, no, again, go and look at the source material. There aren't many strong women characters in Willie's three existing Laidlaw novels. It's very much a man's world. And if you go back to the police force in Scotland or elsewhere in 1972, you'd be hard pressed to find uh, any female detectives um, or anybody of senior rank who's a, who's a woman. But they said, well, look, you have got some women characters in here. Can you just maybe strengthen the role that they play? And let's see a little bit more of them. Let's get more of their story. So again, that's possibly not true to the original ethos that you would find in the um, Laidlaw books. 
but all of that was was challenging but it was a lot of fun and you know i find during covid i've been writing furiously i'd been slowing down i'd been writing one book every two years and then suddenly no you know last year i wrote uh, a rebus novel um a song a song for the dark times as soon as that was finished Canongate came to me with this project and i wrote that book so the first half of last year was the rebus novel second half of last year was McIlvany. Then I was approached at the beginning of this year by a TV company asking if I want to get involved in a whodunit game show, which is coming on TV here in the UK next week. Then I wrote a Rebus stage play, a full line stage play, and now I'm itching to start writing a new book. So weirdly, because I can't travel, because I can't take vacations, because I can't do interviews and book festivals and all the rest of it, I'm just writing furiously and falling in love with the act of writing all over again. Laidlaw as a character had a huge impact, but unlike so many characters in crime fiction, his books were literally few and far between. In you know, first in 1977, and then the papers of uh, Tony Veitch in 1983, and then Strange Loyalties in 1991. We're used to authors diligently serving their reading reading audiences with well spaced books every year or two, but that wasn't the case for for McIlvaney. Was there something about how he viewed the material or the job of being an author that kept the interval between the books as long as it was? Yeah. I mean, he didn't think of himself as a crime writer. Um, he thought those three books were all he really wanted to do with his character. He wanted to go off and do other things. He wanted to write poetry and mm -hmm. song lyrics and plays and uh, essays, newspaper articles and literary novels. And he went off and did all of that. Um, what happened, though, was that his books um, went out of print and he mentioned a, a literary event in Edinburgh. And that's when Canongate Publishing approached him and said, look, this is an outrage, especially the Laidlaw novels. They should be in print. Can we bring them back into print, please? And it signaled the start of an, an amazing third act in Willie's life. He was in his 70s by this stage. And when the books came back into print, all the crime writers in Scotland and elsewhere were delighted to be on the cover giving a little note about how wonderful McIlvany was and what an influence he had been on them. And then when Willie started to go to festivals and do appearances, suddenly hundreds of people were coming along to see him. And I think it dawned on him at that point, I threw the character away too cheaply. He'd been told by his agent or publisher, I forget who, back in the day, oh, if you keep writing about this guy Laidlaw, you will become rich. But he wasn't interested in being rich. He was interested in writing the stories he wanted to write. And, they could, and he felt that they couldn't always be contained in the crime genre. Um, but when he saw the, the, how people loved the character and loved his books, that, I think, is when he sat down and thought, I threw the character away, I'm going to bring him back. There's more I should have done with this character, there's more it can be done. And he got the idea for, I think, two books. One would be a prequel and one would be a sequel. Mm -hmm. So a book from early on in Laidlaw's career and a book that takes place during the final weeks of his police career. Um, and it's just sad that he never got around to publishing or finishing either of those. There wasn't enough in the second book for me to be interested in trying to take it on. There was just a few lines of what the plot might be, plus a title. But maybe another writer can pick that up. But I don't think you could call it a William McIlvany novel. I think you could have to say it's a novel based on an idea by. Speaking of reaching the end of careers, uh -oh. <laughs> I watched a fantastic interview that you did in 2015 in Toronto with uh, with Linwood Barkley, who has also been a, a guest here on Kobo Conversation. And at the time you said that you had stopped the clock on Rebus before he hit 
his retirement age of 60. And since then, you've started the clock again. Um, and so how are you managing his age and time right now? Yeah, uh, it's getting difficult. It's getting difficult. But as I say, I like a challenge and it keeps me on my toes. I mean, he's now retired. He's got health issues. He's in his late 60s. Um, so there's, I mean, how realistic is it that this guy would become involved in a police investigation, a murder inquiry, some kind of mystery? So that's the challenge. The challenge is realistically or as realistically as possible to involve Rebus in a case. Um, See, this is when all the Miss Marple fans are going to start writing you letters because yeah, you know, clearly, know. You know, clearly you can be 100 years old and still be solving well, yeah, Well, look, not just that. But, I mean, we've, got, we've now got Richard Osman setting books in a, in a care home. So mm. Rebus could maybe move into a care home and be in a wheelchair but still solving crimes as someone feeds them um, boiled eggs and, and toast, you know. Uh, who knows? And his nemesis, Cafferty, could be in the next bedroom over. Um, no, I don't think that's going to happen. One thing I would say, and this is something I've always resisted, people have said, oh, well, you can go back in time. You can go back in time and look at Rebus's early cases, and that would give us back the hard-boiled Rebus, the tough Rebus of the early books. And I said, no, those would be historical novels. I'm not interested in that. Well, <laughs> right in the McIlvany book, um, has proved to me, A, that that can be a fascinating exercise, and B, that I now have the tools at my disposal should I wish to do that. So I'm not saying that I will do it, but if I get to a natural end for Rebus, where I think, no, it's not realistic for him to be solving crimes anymore in the present day, I could go back and take him back to the 80s. Because when we first met him in 1987, he's 40 years old uh, or thereabouts, and he's already been a detective for several years. So there's a fair chunk of the 80s that is available to me should I want it. But I don't know. I've got an idea for one, at least one more story that's set in the present day. Uh, and I'm going to hopefully start that soon. Now, the big problem I've got there is how much do I talk, how much of COVID do I bring into that book? Are people mm -hmm. walking about the streets with masks on? Um, you know, is this still ongoing? Are we still in the middle of a pandemic? Is the pandemic st stretched out? Are people suffering from long COVID? What's going on? Um, or are people a bit fed up of all that and they would rather read about a non-COVID world? So just pretend it doesn't happen and people are just going about their business. Rebus would not deal well with the current pandemic. Um, his favourite bar, which is also my favourite bar, was closed for almost two years when it reopened, it was bookings only and table service only, and it's just not his vibe and it's not my vibe. I like standing at the bar in a crowded place, picking up on people's conversations and just elbowing my way into strangers' conversations. This being seated at a, at a table six feet away from the other drinker doesn't suit me and it wouldn't suit Rebus. So uh, I don't know how he would deal with this COVID world. I'd kind of be fascinated to see him grind against that, though. The uh, yeah. I'd, I'd actually be more worried about him with pulmonary disease walking around yeah. in in a COVID world at all. But you know what? The the during the first first bit of the pandemic, I was approached by the National Theatre of Scotland. They said, "Look, we're doing some online stuff. Do you want to write a little monologue for us about COVID, about lockdown?" I went, "Yeah, sure." And I wrote a ten minute monologue for Rebus which was basically trying to answer the question I was getting asked online by fans, which is what would Rebus be doing during lockdown because of his health issues? Mm -hmm. He's got to be very, very careful. So I wrote a 10-minute monologue, and they thought they, the National Theatre of Scotland said, this is great. It's online. If you, if you look up uh, Rebus, Lockdown Blues, you'll find it somewhere. And they said, we've given it to Brian Cox, uh, the actor from Succession. 
Um, and he's going to do it. And I said, whoa. Oh, he'd be fantastic. I sat, I, I sat in this very room. I sat in my office and through via Zoom or whatever, we we did. He was in Upper State, New York, um, isolating before they started shooting Succession. And he said, I'll, I'll dress the uh, kitchen of my cabin to look as much like an Edinburgh tenement as possible. Bless him. And he went away and he got a map of Edinburgh and he got some bottles of whiskey and, you know, he got uh, he even bought dog food. Now, Brian Cox does not have a dog, but Rebus does. So he bought tins of dog food of him sitting around as if Rebus was just going to go off and feed the dog. And he did it. And I just sat in my room watching him do it. And it was a miracle. And it was lovely. And it was interesting to see how it was interesting for me to work out exactly how Rebus would be coping. And yes, the answer is not well. (laughs) Well, the one advantage of going back in time would be that you would kind of fully create uh, the bridge between Laidlaw's police procedurals and the ones that became Rebus's. The 1980s are sort of your undiscovered country. Um, But you have said that you don't want to be the one to write the final Rebus novel. No, I want my son to write it, but he shows no interest in becoming a writer. So that's probably going to get kicked into the long grass. Um, you know, the final Rebus novel, what does that mean? It means nothing these days. Um, when a, when an author dies, if the character they've created is any good, the character lives on. People are still wanting to read Miss Marple novels, Poirot novels, James Bond novels, Sherlock Holmes novels. Um, any great character will last m- longer than their creator, which is kind of weird. Um, but I'll have no say in it whatsoever. You know, my... Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll be in my grave and my estate will be saying, yes, please, can somebody just take this on and do more of these books? Uh, let's have Rebus as a school kid solving crimes. Let's have Rebus in the army solving crimes. Uh, all that uh, is potential. You know, who, I, I bet Colin Dexter, when he, you know, when he was writing the final Inspector Morse books, never thought that Morse would come back on TV as Endeavour. The Adventures of Young Inspector Morse, which has nothing, none of the writing comes from anything that the original creator did. So we get we get very little say in that. It's it's what happens when you've got a really intriguing character that people fall in love with and want to know more about, is that they they somehow they keep going. Rebus was only ever meant to be around for one book. When I got the idea for Rebus, it was a it was meant to be an updating of one of my favorite books, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And I thought, okay, it's set in present-day Edinburgh, and the, and the Dr. Jekyll figure is a cop who's having blackouts. He's investigating a serial killer, but these blackouts mean he can't remember what he's done the night before. There's a locked room in his apartment. We don't know what's behind the door of the locked room, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You were meant to think that this guy, Rebus, was potentially a suspect. Um, and, uh, you know, the first draft, at the end of the first draft, he dies, uh, he, he's shot and killed. And for some reason, second draft, I thought, oh, well, no, he doesn't die. But then I went off and did other things. I decided I want to be a spy writer, I want to be a thriller writer, um, anything I thought might make me a living. And then an editor said to me, hey, what happened to that guy, Rebus? I liked him a lot. And it, that came up at a time when I was just, I, I decided that what I really wanted to do was explore the city of Edinburgh and use it as a microcosm for Scotland as a whole and perhaps further afield. But actually, get to try and dig into, dig, dig down beneath the skin of Edinburgh, and I thought, well, a detective's a fantastic means of doing that because they have access to every layer of society from the top to the bottom. So as long as this guy Rebus allows me to do that, maybe I'll do more books with him. 
And he just, you know, he refused to leave the stage once he was back on the page. No, that was it. And then I retired him um, at the end of, after 17 books. I thought he's 60 years old, he's got to retire. And for five years, didn't write about him. And then found a way to bring him back, working cold cases. And I was really worried that his voice wouldn't be there anymore, having not written about him for five years. But by God, he bounded onto the page. He was desperate to be let out of that little prison cell I kept him in. Uh, and page one of the, the, the comeback book, I remember it was a funeral and Rebus is watching the funeral proceedings from a distance, desperate for a cigarette. And as soon as I got that instinct, he would be desperate for a cigarette at this point in proceedings. Yep, he was back. Alan Massey in The, in the Spectator wrote that McElveney gave to Glasgow the same thing that Raymond Chandler gave to Los Angeles. It's, it's fictional identity. You've been setting books in Edinburgh for over 30 years, and some would say have done the same for that city. As, do you ever get the desire to go outside of that to, to center characters, you know, to give that same sense of locale in a different place with a different set of textures and a different landscape? I mean, maybe what happens is I get an idea for a, a theme I want to explore, a question I want to address for my own satisfaction. And it's usually wrapped up in, you know, something that, that's happened in the world, something that is happening in the world. Why is it happening? Um, and then I find a plot that allows me to explore that. And the plot usually involves a crime of some kind. And then I think, OK, where's the best place to set this? And Edinburgh is such a fascinating city to me. It is a Jekyll and Hyde city. And always has been um, on the surface, genteel, cultured, privileged, underneath, festering with lots of social problems, lots of, of pent up aggression, lots of crime, but well hidden and always has been. Um, so I just find Edinburgh as a fascinating city to explore. And because it has that Jekyll and Hyde nature to it, it makes it perfect for writing crime fiction. Um, you, can, you can imagine the, the overworld and the underworld meeting in Edinburgh. Uh, and so, yeah, so I keep writing about the place. It just keeps fascinating me. Could I write about anywhere else like that? I don't know. I mean, I'm, you know, Rebus occasionally goes to places like Aberdeen or Glasgow or London, or he's even been to Northern Ireland. Um, and in the last book, he went way up north to the, the wild north coast of Scotland where his daughter lives. And that took him well out of his comfort zone, which was interesting to me. Because um, not only is he an ex-cop, so he's not carrying a badge, so he can't bust his way into a police investigation the way he used to, but also he was a father. It was his daughter who was being investigated potentially for having done away with her partner. Um, so is he, is he going up there as a, as a detective? His very DNA is, a, is as a detective, or is he going there as a father who will try and protect his daughter, even if it means covering up for her? So that was the kind of, that was the big moral question in that book, but it was nice to get him out of his comfort zone. Um, yeah, I can't. I don't know if I would write a book set anywhere else. Um, I mean, I lived in France for six years and never felt the need to write a book there. I lived in London for four years and wrote two books set there, one set there completely and one a Rebus novel set partially there. Uh, Edinburgh just fascinates me. It's like a TARDIS, you know. It's much bigger on the inside than the outside, which means you can explore it endlessly. One of the things we like to ask people when we have them here is not just about their writing lives, but also their reading lives. As you were getting your arms around the source material and around this character, you mentioned that you read the other 
the other Laidlaw books, but were there other books that you picked up to get a feel for the times or just to get your head in the right place as you went to tackle this project? Yeah, I mean, uh, there are quite a few writers who either write about Glasgow in the now or write about Glasgow in of the past. Um, Alan Parks is one. I like his books a lot. He's written four so far. Each book has a different month in the title. Um, the April Dead is the latest one. And those books are set in early 80s Glasgow. So they gave me a little bit of a sense of not the Glasgow of the book I was about to write, but the Glasgow that some of the McIlvany books take place in. Then there were Willie's other books. I mean, he, he's written a, a slew of books that are not crime novels, but are set in the west of Scotland around that time. So I had to go off and read those as well. And Doherty is a fantastic novel he wrote um, um, that can he uh, tangentially is attached to the Laidlaw universe in that Laidlaw's brother knows a guy called Doherty who's related to the Doherty, who's the hero of the book that Willie wrote. Uh, it gets very complex. Um so I did all of that, um, but mostly when I'm writing a novel, I tend not to read much and I tend not to read much crime fiction because I'm always afraid that subconsciously I am going to steal the author's ideas. Um, if anybody's got a better idea than me, I'm going to nick it. And I usually have to go back to my wife and talk it through. She reads a lot of crime fiction and she says, oh, no, you've, you've taken that from Ruth Rendell or you've taken that from somewhere else. Um, so she keeps she keeps tabs on me and makes sure that I don't steal um, but yeah, I was uh, mostly what I was doing wasn't reading books. Mostly what I was doing was jigsaws. I, was, I suddenly got into jigsaws during lockdown, and I just found that lovely kind of mindful, mindful but mindless entertainment. But mostly literary jigsaws, lest you think I'm slacking. So you can get the world of Jane Austen, the world of Charles Dickens, the world of Shakespeare, the world of Sherlock Holmes done as a jigsaw. And when you were reading a year's worth of Glasgow newspapers. <laughs> uh, from 1972, was there anything else that jumped out at you? Or you're like, okay, that that's something that I'm going to tuck away for later. Uh, yeah, there were bits and pieces. I mean, I did write, I wrote a slew of notes. The one tiny story that did tickle me, and I thought, oh, can I get that into the book in any way, shape, or form? And I just couldn't. But it would be nice to. In October 1972, there was a tiny little article. Um, about the uh, University of Strathclyde, which is a university in Glasgow. And they had given a job to a young writer to work in our creative writing department or to be their writer in residence. And that young writer's name was William McIlvany. And I thought, how weird to be reading a newspaper from October 1972, the month that the book was going to be set in. And there is William McIlvany's name, very little known at that time jumping out at me. And I was really keen that I try and make Laidlaw read the Glasgow Herald from that particular day so that if anybody did go and pick it up, they would actually see William McIlvany. But it never quite made it into the final cut, I'm afraid. In addition to being um, uh, spending a lot of time uh, working on the page, you also uh, you love music. You're a collector of music. You've, uh, you've been in bands yourself. As you were... Um, in your kind of uh, COVID lockdown status, did your musical tastes change? I, I'm not sure my musical tastes changed, but I was very aware that COVID was not impacting negatively on my working practices. Writers mm -hmm. tend to spend their time in isolation anyway, writing books. But a lot of creative people I know suddenly had no income at all. Jobbing musicians, songwriters, actors, um, artists, et cetera, et cetera. 
And I did start to buy a lot of merchandise. I would buy a lot of band T-shirts and stuff. And I started to buy a lot of CDs and, and albums and stuff uh, from the artists themselves just mm-hmm. to, or if they were doing their online gig, I would pay to see their online gig just to keep them in work because I was terrified that this whole creative community was in a very parlous and fragile state. What I did do was buy a streamer. I think I, th- I said I would never do. During a little gap in hostilities during COVID, I went to a hi-fi shop and checked out some streaming devices and ended up buying one and then signing up to a streaming service. And music did keep me sane um, throughout. What I found hard to start with was reading books. I found writing books was actually fairly straightforward, but my attention span when it came to reading was limited. Every five minutes I was going, I wonder if I should check the news. Any update on the figures? Are we any nearer a vaccine? I should just check and see what's happening around the world. Are people still dying in Italy, et cetera, et cetera. And what I did was to get my reading mojo back, I went back to writers I loved and short books, nice short books by writers that I admired and loved. And I did go back and read a lot of Muriel Spark um, novels. I went back and read Maigret, a lot of the Maigret detective stories, which were being issued in new editions at that time, new translations. Um, And a 12-book sequence um, called A Dance to the Music of Time by an English novelist called Anthony Powell, who is not much read these days, but was a huge influence on me because it's basically 12 novels written over 25 years, which trace a single character and their friends and associates from school days to old age. And it showed me how to do the aging process with a, with a set of characters. So that was very important to me with the Rebus sequence. You have a unique clause in your contract with your publisher, as I understand it, where you are allowed to change up to 10% of the book um, at what many in publishing would consider to be a remarkably late stage in the publishing process. How did that first come about? Uh, is that is that unique? I thought that used to be fairly standard. Um, yeah, I mean, up until when you get the proofs, the proofs are once the book has been completed to everybody's satisfaction. It's been, mm-hmm. you know, it's been printed up and everything. Um, at that stage, you can you can still make some changes, but usually they will charge you because it's expensive for them to have to go back and reset the type and everything else. But I mean, you know, from early days of my contract, it would say you can I can do ten percent of that free of charge. And if I change more than 10% of the book, then they'll start charging me. I've got to say that it never comes to that. Because I was going to say, time, what's the most you've yeah, ever done? Come on. <laughs> well, by the time it gets to that stage, it's the occasional typo, the occasional spelling mistake. Um, because when the book is completed to my satisfaction, which is usually draft three, the first person who reads it is then my wife. And that's terrifying because she gets printed out and she sits with a pencil and starts scribbling in the margins. Then she hands it back to me. And I go through it and anything she doesn't like gets changed. Um, so by the time it goes to my agent, it has been edited as far as I'm concerned. Uh, then it goes to the editor, the publisher slash editor. And we'll, they will come back and say, Ian, we suggest. And I go, hang on a minute, guys. This has already been edited by my wife. She likes it. Come on. What are you, what are you telling me? What, needs, what still needs changing? But we'll have a little negotiation then and I will change some of it and that won't change everything um, that they want me to do. And then it gets printed up. So by then there's very little, there's very little room for maneuver. Everything is, and you know, here's the thing, with a crime novel, it's like putting a lot of dominoes lined up, standing up. 
if you just move, remove one domino or move one domino, it changes the whole thing, the whole pattern, the way these dominoes fall changes. So by the time you've, you've finished the book and it's very intricate, this very intricate mechanism of a whodunit is there. If you tinker with a tiny part of it, the knock-on effect can be huge. So I'm very wary. I mean, it's very easy for an editor to say, oh, can you just get rid of that character? And you go, well, yeah, but that changes literally everything that happens thereafter. Um, it's easy for you to say that. It's very difficult for me to make that happen. So um, I try not to change anything by the time we get to that stage. So I've never had to spend a penny on uh, late changes. Ian Rankin, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I've been speaking with Ian Rankin, most recently responsible for bringing William McElvaney's character Laidlaw back for one more novel, The Dark Remains. Find that book as well as the Inspector Reba series and all of the other books that we've talked about here uh, at Kobo and Conversations home on the web, kobo.com slash conversation. There's a link in the show notes. Make sure to leave a rating, catch every conversation by subscribing wherever you listen. Kobo and Conversations is produced by Nathan Maharaj and hosted by me, Michael Tamlin. Thank you for listening. And I never got to say what I was reading just now. Never mind. Ah. Don't worry about it. We, paint, we mentioned plenty of books. We mentioned plenty of books. <laughs> we did. What are you reading right now? Well, I've literally, my wife, her book group, just did a, an old novel. I mean, a novel that came out in the late 40s um, by Dorothy B. Hughes, In a Lonely Place. You may know the film. Humphrey Bogart was in the movie. And it's basically a guy who comes back from the war and rocks up in Los Angeles where his best friend from wartime is a cop. But this guy's a serial killer. And we kind of know it from the get-go, although he never tells us he's a serial killer, we, we can see and tell that he's a serial killer. And it's basically a game of cat and mouse as to whether this guy's going to get found out or not. Um, it's creepy as hell. It's dark as hell. Um, and I had not heard of Dorothy B. Hughes before, but I'm now a convert and I'm heading off to find everything hers that I can get my hands on. And she has other books as well. There's a yeah, there's yeah. A quite, I, I think at least. I mean, again, Penguin Classics have been bringing them out. Um, as I think I've found at least half a dozen, but I'm sure there are more. Um, also, there's a lovely little book that a friend of mine, uh, Denise Mina, M-I-N-A, has just brought out, uh, which is called Rizzio. Rizzio was the good friend, possibly lover, of Mary Queen of Scots, and was assassinated by Mary Queen of Scots' husband and his henchmen in front of her in the Palace of Holyrood House in Edinburgh. Uh, and Denise, who mostly writes crime fiction set in the present day, has written a novel about it. And it's only 100 pages long, but it's bloody great. It's fascinating. And it makes me want to go back to Holyrood and look again at the bloodstains on the floor, um, which I'm, I believe the curators keep having to top up every now and again. They have to get a little bit of red paint out again and paint the bloodstains back on the floor so, they, so the American tourists are happy. <laughs> <laughs>